0: If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospels, and we're going to turn this morning to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. You know, with Thanksgiving right around the corner and, and um, just thinking about that coming up, I was, I was considering what, uh, just to, for us to have some time together to consider today what would be the proper attitude and response of a person who is, is truly grateful and thankful... For the forgiveness and the salvation that they have in Christ. What what should our natural and what should our honest response be? How should we act? What should our, our nature be when we consider all that Christ has done for us? In some ways that may sound strange because you know, a person who has experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God and the, the forgiveness of God, surely the natural response. And the obvious response and the obvious attitude would be to show gratefulness in return and to show uh, kindness and love toward the one who had been so kind to us. That's the natural thought processes that we should think about. And often that is the case. But the reality remains that for many over time, the fervency and the zeal and the passion that we once had for Christ, well, it seems to fade. Sadly... As one writer put it, far too often we can simultaneously quote some of those great scriptures. John 3:16, For all for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can quote that. We can quote Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can, the writer says, we can quote many of those scriptures while simultaneously yawning. His point is just simply that the amazing truth of God's love and forgiveness can regrettably lose its impressiveness. That the magnificence of our salvation can unfortunately tumble down the list of things with which we are most awestruck and enthralled and amazed. Of course, there's another reason why some folks yawn And appear utterly unimpressed with the gospel. It's because they have never truly come to grips with its amazing nature. The salvation that Jesus offers doesn't really seem all that remarkable because they don't really see themselves as folks that benefit from it. In other words, there are those who are unimpressed with Jesus because they are overly impressed with themselves. However, in the the passage that we're going to to read today, I want you to know that we're going to find the story of a woman whose love and whose gratitude for Jesus stands in stark contrast to that. In fact, she's an example to be emulated. She had been a very notorious sinner, but she had experienced forgiveness and, and her life had been changed and transformed. In fact, the gospel had so radically altered her life that... Her gratitude and her devotion and her love for Jesus became so evident that we witnessed not in her any yawning whatsoever. There's no lackadaisical or humdrum approach to Jesus. Rather, as we will see, the grace and the mercy that she had received made her yearn for Christ. And in her response to Christ, we come to realize that she has very much to teach us about what ought to happen in our own lives as we respond in gratitude to the Lord for all that he has done for us. So with that as an introduction, let's read this passage. It it happens right there at the end, beginning in verse 36 of of chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven... The same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for the word that you have given to us. A word that, that really shines a light into the heart of who we are and causes us to inspect ourselves and to investigate our response to you in light of all that you have forgiven us of. And I pray that that would be what we would engage in today, each and every person in this room. Lord, we just desire to love you with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. So I pray that that would be what we would do today as we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and guidance. In Christ's holy name, amen. The scene that Luke describes in this passage is a classic example of of opposites. Um, Simon the Pharisee is is contrasted with this this woman who isn't even given a name in this passage. She's an unnamed woman. Uh, Simon is a self-righteous, upstanding citizen of the community, who no doubt possessed a great reputation. This unnamed woman, on the other hand, uh, was a woman who also had a reputation, but it was far from anything that was good. Um, in fact, she is she is referred to as being a known sinner. And and most Bible scholars and, and, and folks that have commented on this passage mean likely that she was a prostitute and that that is how she had earned her living. So very clearly, this scene represents us with two figures who were just as opposite on the spectrum as you could possibly get. The main character of the story, however, is Jesus. And and Luke tells us that Jesus accepted an invitation from this Pharisee whose name is Simon and and that the Pharisee asked him to come and to dine with him. Now, many have have tried to use conjecture to figure out exactly why uh, he was invited to Simon's house. Uh, many have wondered what, what the purpose was. I think that the details of the story indicate to us that Simon certainly was not a believer in Jesus. He was not someone who, who saw Jesus as his Savior. Likely he was a skeptic who was trying to gain information about Jesus. Maybe he was sub- just trying to find something to subvert the plan that Jesus was involved with. But it may be just as likely that he just wanted to try to figure out who this guy was that was getting so much popularity. What we should know, though, is that Jesus, even knowing... He knew exactly why Simon would have asked him to come to his house, and yet we see that Jesus accepted his invitation because he was always willing to sit down and eat with anyone, Even, even a skeptical Pharisee like Simon. Now, the dinner party itself though is interesting because it would have not been anything like any dinner party that you and I likely have attended. We were, my, my wife and, and family and I were invited to a dinner party the other night and, and it was nothing like this. Uh, at this dinner party in first century Jewish life, Simon the Pharisee probably had a nice, larger house with an open space. And and so many times when they were invited to eat there, the the guests would come and they would sort of lounge in an open area and, and it would be open enough so that people who lived in the community could kind of just drop by unannounced and uh, uninvited even, and they could come in. And, and this was common. This was a, a common way of doing. People would come and sit along the edge, listen to, especially if someone was, was being uh, uh, having a talk or, or a lot of discussion was going on, they could listen to what was going on and, and, and even sometimes partake of some of the food. Now, that's very weird to us. That's not how we would throw a party, but this was common in first century Judaism for this way to happen. What was also common is that when they would eat, they would, they would, they would lay down. And and, and they lay down on, and kind of stretch out, and you'd have a table in the middle and lean on the left elbow, and, and then you could kind of dip, you know, take food and eat with your right hand. And and I've been to some places in the world where that's kind of how the food was served, and I've made a royal mess out of myself and, and everything that I ate, but that was common in those times. So, so everything about this party is a little bit different for us to kind of take in, but it's important that we understand those details because they set up for us everything else that occurs because... Because while all of that would have been common and understanding what was not common was for a woman like this to show up. For a woman like this who was a notorious sinner to show up in this home. In fact for her to show up she, she made her way in and, and everybody would have noticed because they knew her reputation but she made her way back around where Jesus was and stopped there at his feet. And the Bible says that she began to weep. Now, I want you to know this was not just some little light sniffling and crying. It was nothing like that. No, the word that Luke uses here is a word that means when she wept, it's a word that meant to wet. In other words, she cried so much. And she wept uncontrollably, really losing control of herself to the point that it soaked Jesus' feet with her tears. It's an amazing thing that occurred there. Martin Luther refers to the tears that she wept as heart water. And it was the water that bubbled out of her eyes that came from her heart because she recognized that Jesus had done something for her. It was so great and so overwhelming. She was so overwhelmed by the grace that she wept out of sheer gratitude. But then as she looked down and she saw how wet Jesus' feet was, she did something else that was quite radical. It says that she took her hair down, which meant she would have taken whatever she had covering over her head and and she would have disentangled her hair and let it fall and used her hair then to dry Jesus' feet. Now, Again, in our culture today, that may not seem that that weird of a thing to do, but according to the Talmud, which the Jews lived by, for a woman to show her hair to another man was grounds for divorce. In fact, it was such a, a radical thing for her to take her hair down in public that Alistair Begg, in a sermon that he preached on this passage, said it would have been no less shocking to the people present if she had disrobed right there in public. Notice that Luke tells us that she also took this alabaster jar that she had with. Her which tells us that she brought it intentionally. She knew what she intended to do. And she took this alabaster jar that contained perfume, likely an expensive perfume, could have been the most expensive thing she owned. And she poured out its contents of perfume on the feet of Jesus. She poured it all out for the glory of Christ. And it is without any doubt that everyone who was there at that party was shocked. They were dumbfounded by what they had seen. And I imagine that as the aroma of that perfume began to waft around the room or around the courtyard, so the gravity of what had just occurred began to penetrate the mind of Simon the Pharisee. He was no doubt shocked by what this woman had just done. But listen, he was even more shocked by what Jesus did not do. You see... Simon no doubt expected Jesus to jump to his feet in indignation and, and then to condemn the woman's actions and, and, to, and for her, her public display of emotion and, and for, you know, just, dishonoring herself in public as she had just done. No doubt Simon expected Jesus to rebuke her and to castigate her for her immorality and for her indiscretion, but notice that not only did Jesus not discourage this woman, he actually accepted her display of love and affection and he even encouraged her. Simon is just stunned. He was not only shocked by the woman, he's more shocked by Jesus and he even says to himself in verse 39, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now that gives us the clearest indication for why he had invited Jesus to his home. He was investigating Jesus. He was trying to figure out who Jesus was. And this action, this lack of action on Jesus' behalf proved to Simon that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. He was certainly no prophet. Now, from this response, we learn a few things that are important to note about what Simon was thinking. First of all, we see that he has contempt for the woman and believes her to be unacceptable, untouchable. She's a sinner whose well-known sin made her an outcast. That's the first thing. The second thing that we note is that he has absolutely no idea why Jesus came to this earth. He has no concept of the gospel and why Jesus came to save sinners. And the third thing we recognize is he believes himself to be qualitatively different from this woman. He might not be perfect. You probably could press Simon, and he probably wouldn't have said that he was perfect and completely without sin, but he certainly was, not, was a cut above her. He was better than she was. I mean, however you wanted to mark sin and you wanted to measure it out, What he had done in his life was small in comparison to her. Contact with him was not defiling. That was obvious. He had invited Jesus to his house. You couldn't be defiled by coming in contact with him, but you could certainly defile yourself by coming in contact with her. She was a great sinner who was fundamentally different from him. That's Simon's understanding. And his judgmental, condemning, holier-than-thou attitude reveals what Simon's idea of religion is all about. In his mind, religion was all about being good. God likes good people. God wants to be around good people who live good lives and and who who earn his love and earn his respect and earn his, his favor. And so religion is all about doing the things that should be done, not doing the things that shouldn't be done, and staying in your lane. As I said in the first service, it means driving 55 miles an hour and staying in your lane. That's what religion was for him. But in his mind, there was no room for the issue of grace in his theology. Recognize this. You don't need grace if you don't do anything wrong. If your your idea is just to check off all the boxes, both good and bad, there's no need for grace in your life. And those who need it aren't going to get it because they're not worthy of it. That was Simon's understanding. But Simon was wrong and his his incorrect misconceptions about God and about grace actually help us to understand something very important. I mentioned in the first service, I'll tell you as well, I've been reminiscing a lot about my dad recently. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about the various sermons that I heard him preach, and It's amazing to me. There's a few preacher's kids in the room, and some of y'all can smile at me because you know what I'm saying. I can hear hear him preaching sermons that when I was seven, eight years old, I can still hear him and see him in the church that he pastored. I haven't been in that church in seems like 100 years, but I can still see him in Springway Baptist Church saying this. He used to have this phrase. I don't know where he stole it from, but this is the phrase that he used. There are no big eyes and no little us at the foot of the cross. I just remember him saying that. And he repeated it many, 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 many times throughout, throughout my life and throughout his preaching. There's no big eyes and no little us at the foot of the cross. Well, I've taken that phrase and I've modified it a little bit and I've changed it, and it becomes the first point that I want you to see this morning. Based on what we've learned in this passage, I want you, there's no big eyes and there's no little us when it comes to grace. Because all of us are equal in our need of a Savior. All of us are equal in our need of a Savior. There's no big eyes and no little U's. Listen, the Bible tells us in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me give you a Greek lesson. The word all in Greek means all. Means everybody. It means there's nobody who escapes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 verse 23 tells us what we have earned as a result of that sin. The wages, that's what you earn. The wages of our sin is death. What that means is that according to Scripture, every man, woman, boy, and girl is under a death sentence because they are sinners. And what that tells us is is that we are all, every single one of us, is in need of a Savior. And what that further tells us is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. In other words, there are no sins that are too great for God's grace, but brothers and sisters, let me also say that there are no sins that are too insignificant to need God's grace. All sin, regardless of what sin it is, separates us from a holy and righteous God, and it is only by the grace of our Savior that any of us can ever hope to be reconciled to him. Jesus, of course, knew this very well, and the scene that had unfolded around this dinner party was going to allow him to teach that lesson to Simon the Pharisee. You see, contrary to what Simon thought, Simon thought, well, this man, he doesn't know what kind of woman this is. Contrary to what Simon thought, Jesus knew exactly what kind of woman this was, and he even more importantly knew what kind of man Simon was. In fact, Jesus read Simon's thoughts like an open book, which is what launched him into this parable that he teaches here. Sometimes Jesus taught with some extravagant, long parables. I I could think of the parable of the prodigal son would be one, kind of more detailed and longer and drawn out. Jesus here uses a short and to the point parable. He doesn't go into great detail. He gets right to the point. And he says this. He says, two men owe a debt to a same moneylender. One man owes 500 denarii or approximately two years worth of wages. The other man owes 50 denarii or approximately two months worth of wages. But neither man could pay their debt to the, to the moneylender. Both are completely broke and have no ability to pay back what they owe. So even though their amounts are different, in reality, they're the same because both of them are broke debtors. You see, when you have no resources to, to pay, the question of how much debt you owe becomes pretty academic at that point. Both are debtors. Both are bankrupt. But the amazing part of the story is that it's what the moneylender does. He's the guy to whom all of this debt is owed. But then he freely forgives both men. Notice he freely forgave both of them. That word "freely" forgave. The "freely" there comes from the from the word "karizomai." It's the word we get our word "caris" from. It's the word that we get our word "grace" from. He showed grace. To them, he he turned their debt back around and made it a gift, and that's the amazing side of what this parable is all about. You see, these two men who deserve to be put into debtor's prison because they had no ability to pay back what they owe, the the money lender instead makes it a gift to them and sets them free. Now, I want you to know, therein is the essence of what grace is all about. And it's here that Jesus puts the crosshairs on Simon the Pharisee because, you see, having told this very simple parable, Jesus asked him, says, tell me, which one of those two men are going to love the creditor more? Now, both would obviously be thankful, but the reality is that one of them had experienced a truly life challenge. The difference between owing someone two years worth of wages versus owing them two months worth of wages is significant. It would be the same as if the bank called you up and said, hey, that car loan that you've got out there, we're going to forgive that. The car, loan, the car is yours. You don't have to pay us another dime. But imagine if they were to call you up and say the house mortgage payment that you're making, that 30-year note, guess what? It's done. You don't know what, you don't know." Both of them are wonderful. One of them is life-changing. Jesus says, which one do you think is going to love the creditor more? Simon, he says, I suppose the one who forgave more. And Jesus affirmed by saying, you judged rightly. And now the trap has been set. Because you see, Jesus now reveals the purpose for the parable. It was not just a simple lesson in economics. Rather, it was a way in which he could explain about the great debt of our sin and the the grace that God has for us in our sin, but the gratitude that such grace demands. Jesus evidently gestured at the woman that was there, and he asked, he said, do you see this woman? And I just find that to be so humorous. Do I see that woman? Simon had probably not taken his eyes off that woman since she came into his house. And when he looked at her, he obviously looked at her with disdain, Likely he hated her. She represented everything that he was against in life. Everything that she had been a part of was the things that he had set himself up as being against. He had no doubt looked at her and saw her as nothing but scum of the earth. Jesus says, do you see her? And it's a call for him to say, why don't you take a look at her the way that I do? Why don't you change the lens that you're looking at this woman with and see her the way that I see her? And then from verses 44 through 46, Jesus explains it. He contrasts the differences between the way that this unnamed woman had treated him and the way that Simon the Pharisee had treated him. You see, Simon had done almost nothing for Jesus. He had not not provided a basin for Jesus to wash his feet in. He had not greeted Jesus with a kiss he had not offered any oil on for his head. All of those things, by the way, were customary things that any host would have offered to a guest in their home. Simon had done none of it. That is one of the reasons why many believe that he was just a skeptic who didn't care about Jesus at all. But the woman, on the other hand, she'd done everything that Simon had failed to do. She didn't bring Jesus water. Listen, listen. She poured the water out from her own soul through her eyes onto Jesus' feet. She didn't kiss Jesus on the cheek. She kissed him on his feet. In fact, the verb that Luke uses, it's a, it's a continuous action verb that means she just she continued to kiss him over and over and over again. She didn't anoint his head. With oil, she took the most expensive thing she likely owned, the perfume, and anointed his feet with it. And then she took her hair down and dried his feet with her hair. And in this way, Jesus points out that this notoriously sinful woman surpassed Simon the Pharisee in every single respect. And in verse 47, Jesus says why. He says, I I say to you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. It's important to note that Jesus is not saying that this woman was forgiven of her sins because she loved much. Rather, it's just the opposite of that. She loved much because of what had been done to her. She loved Jesus and poured out her love upon Jesus because Jesus had forgiven her which is exactly what verse 47 means. Verse 47 is the answer to the question Jesus asked in verse 42. In verse 42, Jesus asked, Who will love the creditor more, the one forgiven much or the one forgiven little? In verse 47, Jesus answers it. And what becomes obvious is that this woman's great love and gratitude to Jesus resulted from the fact that she realized just how much she had been forgiven of. She had discovered that with Jesus, there is enough forgiveness to go go around for all of our sin. Even if we feel like we're the biggest sinner in the world. I wonder if you realize that. Maybe you're here and you're hearing this story and you're thinking to yourself, boy, I sure wish I could experience something like that. I wish I could have something like that woman did. Preacher, you just don't know. You don't know where all I've been. You don't know what all I've done. You don't know the depths to which I've fallen. I wish I could have that kind of forgiveness in my life, but I don't. And I don't see how in the world that God could ever forgive me. Here's what I want you to know. There is no depth that is too deep that the grace of God cannot reach you. There is no sin That it's too wicked that God cannot forgive. His grace is deeper and wider and stronger and higher than anything you have ever done. That's the conclusion that this unnamed woman here in Luke 7 had come to. And that realization so transformed her and so overwhelmed her that she gave herself completely over to loving Christ with a reckless abandon. You notice she didn't care about the cultural mores of her time. She wasn't concerned about what anyone else thought of her. She gave herself completely uninhibited in her love and affection to Jesus. But where did that leave Simon the Pharisee? What did his response to Jesus reveal about the true condition of his heart? Well, According to this parable that Jesus told, if gratitude, for, if gratitude and love for Christ is a sign of forgiveness, then a lack of gratitude and love shows that one does not believe that there is much for which they needed to be forgiven of, or even worse, that they've never been forgiven at all. You see, if it's true, as I stated earlier, that there are no big eyes and no little U's when it comes to grace because all of us are in need of a Savior then we must ask the question if there really is such a person who has been forgiven of little. Is there really such a person out there that can say, I've only been forgiven of a little? When it came to Simon, he undoubtedly considered himself a little sinner, especially when compared to this woman. But the Scripture teaches us that all sin, regardless of how insignificant we may think it to be, separates us from God. And we may think that a prostitute is much worse than a a gossip. And listen, the ramifications of sin as it pertains to what we experience in this life may very well be that they experience harsher things that occur. But listen, as it pertains to the spiritual realm, all sin places us under the death sentence and applies to us a debt that is so large that none of us could ever hope to repay it. The Puritan theologian John Owen observed this. He said, he who, he who has slight thoughts of sin never has great thoughts of God. He who has slight thoughts of sin never has great thoughts of God. And that was precisely Simon's problem. Because he trivialized his sin, he misunderstood just how huge of a debt that he owed And that leads me to the next point, the second point on your outline, and it's this. If we show little love and gratitude for Jesus, it can only be because we have little idea how much we have been forgiven. The less we feel the need to be forgiven, the more self-righteous we become. The more self-righteous we become, the less we show love. In other words, we become like Simon, only doing the minimum. Never pouring out our lives as a fragrant perfume for the glory of Christ. Simon didn't offer Jesus a kiss. He didn't wash his feet. He didn't give him oil to soothe his skin. That was his way of showing a lack of love and gratitude to Jesus. How might we do that in our lives? For many, we may not ever praise him publicly. We may not ever sing passionately. We may not ever go out and tell others about the good news that has occurred in our lives. We don't give a testimony of who Jesus is. Perhaps we don't speak words of affection and gratitude to Jesus in prayer. We don't spend time opening up his love letter and spend time reading it and studying it for ourselves. We don't take the time to offer a a prayer and say, God, I'm sorry for what I have done. Would you please help me and and, and ask God to help us in our walk of obedience? Maybe we just don't have a relationship with him. How else? Maybe we don't give of our resources. We don't don't take the time that's necessary to serve the Lord. We don't give of our abilities and our talents like we should. We don't give of our financial resources as we ought to. There are multitudes of ways in which we just do the bare minimum. We don't really allow the, the love and the gratitude that God has placed there and should be there to come out. No matter how it fails to surface, the reality is is that if we show little love and gratitude for Jesus, it can only be because we have little idea of just how much we have been forgiven. I think about what this one writer put. He says, once we develop, though, a deep sense of our own personal sin against God, then we will begin to fully grasp the wonder of his grace for us in Christ. And only then we will truly know how large our debt was, the debt of sin that could be canceled only at Calvary. And only then do we know how many of our sins Jesus had to pay for when He died on the cross. And only then do we know the great debt of love that we now owe to God. It's that phrase that I always think about when we sing that song at at the cross. You remember those words, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head? as it read in the original, for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Then I think that probably that notorious sinner woman could have sung the third verse. But drops of grief can never repay. The debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Sing that with me. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Have you been the cross? Have you experienced the forgiveness that God offers sinner just like you? Have you come to Him by faith and trusted in Him and, and, and allowed your sins to be forgiven by Him and by His grace? If not, then I want you to know that on the authority of God's Word that today is the day of salvation. Christ offers you forgiveness and redemption no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what debt you, how big you think it is. I want you to know that it is not greater than God's grace. The Scriptures declare if you will repent of your sins and you will trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior and make Him Lord of your life, that you will be saved. And I want you to know that that is the essence of the Gospel. And if you've done that, and if you claim that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then let me ask you, is your love for Him big If you honestly evaluate your life and your actions, do they reflect a heart that is overflowing with love and gratitude for a Savior who has forgiven you of a debt so large that you could never repay it if you had a thousand lifetimes to try? Does your worship and does your prayer life and does your service to the Lord and your church and how you spend your resources of your time and your money, do all of those things reflect how thankful you are to Him and all that He has done for you? Or are you yawning at the gospel? Listen, the grace that Jesus Christ offers you is if it does not produce a yearning, in your life. If it doesn't produce a life of unreserved love and affection and gratitude toward Jesus, then His grace is either unknown or is it unappreciated. and In either case, repentance is needed and a recommitment of one's life is in order. And if your honest assessment of your own life comes up short, then Christ offers you to reevaluate the debt from which He has freed you. And it is that that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The greater we sense the magnitude of our debt and the immensity of God's grace, the greater our desire will be to demonstrate our love and gratitude for him in return. I love how one preacher put it. He said, when we see ourselves clearly as sinful rebels and see God's mercy clearly as an undeserved gift, then we will want to spend the rest of our lives showing our love and honor to the Lord. We will serve him without complaint and without reservation. We will yearn for him. We will not yawn at him. That, brothers and sisters, is my prayer for myself and is my prayer for each and every one of you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us with a love that reaches past any sin that we have ever engaged in in our life, and it is deeper and wider than anything we can ever imagine. Your love for us is so great. I pray, God, that our lives would be lived in obedience to that love that you have for us. If there's one in this room this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never bowed their knee and their heart to you, confessing you as Lord and asking for your forgiveness of their sins, then I pray today would be that day that they would see themselves for who they truly are and see you for who you truly are. Father, give us the vision not to look down upon sinners who are around us, but help us to see them as you see them and that we would take the good news of the gospel to them. So, Father... Use this time as a way of recommitting our lives to you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please, this morning?